Hello. This is a prepaid debit call from an inmate from the main state prison, Warren. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse this call, hang up or press. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using Global Telling. This is Our Prisons The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio and WMPG with your hosts, Catherine Besteman and Leo Hilton. Today, we're talking with Jonathan Sarbeck, DA for Cumberland County, and Defense Attorney Jeremy Pratt about how a person ends up in prison. I'm Catherine Besteman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. I'm Leo Hilton, and I come to the show not only as someone with lived experience in the criminal legal system, but also as a co-instructor with Catherine at Colby College and a restorative justice scholar-practitioner of five years. For the past year year and a half, Leo and I have worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? Today, we're talking about how people end up in prison. I'm someone who has lived through the criminal legal system, and I'm currently sitting in prison. Over the past 14 and a half years, I have seen hundreds and hundreds of people come into and cycle through this prison. So I've heard the stories of how people come to prison and how they also come back to prison. Jonathan, you're a prosecutor. Everyone knows the courtroom dramas of the prosecutor and defense attorney going at each other. But what happens before that? What are the steps leading up to somebody ending up in your courtroom? So I think the first steps that we see is basically police interaction with individuals on the street, which obviously the Cumberland County DA's office or any DA's office is not part of. But how the process goes is that the prosecutors receive reports uh, from police officers, either misdemeanor reports or felony reports. And once we have those reports, we review them and kind of go through a process on whether or not we're going to prosecute the cases. I think one of the first steps we look at is whether or not we think that we can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, The standard for police when they make an arrest is probable cause, which in the legal system is basically the lowest threshold of proof that we have. But to prove a case beyond uh, to prove a case in court, we have to, as prosecutors, prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest threshold um, that uh, highest burden of proof that we have in the criminal legal system. So when we look at the case, we first analyze whether or not we think that we the facts would uh, or the law would support what the facts are and whether or not we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The second uh, step that we take is really looking at whether or not any constitutional rights were violated. Is there going to be a motion to suppress down the line? Uh, Did police take every step uh, that they needed to take to ensure that a person's rights Uh, weren't violated during the investigative process. And if we do see something that is concerning to us or something that we think would not pass constitutional muster, uh, most likely we won't be going forward with that case. And then the last analysis that we make is really whether or not it would be beneficial to public safety, to the community, to go forward with the prosecution of a case. Uh, We need to speak to victims. We need to to look at the witnesses. uh, We need to look at the evidence. And we also need to look at a criminal history Uh, to know whether or not we should go forward with a prosecution, even though we could go forward. So that's kind of a tough question 
uh, to ask. And uh, But what we really need to do is make sure that we're taking those steps, speaking to the witnesses, speaking to the victims uh, to see what the, what the appropriate steps are. Uh, for a prosecutor, uh, getting guilties, putting people in jail, that's not the goal. Our, our, what we aim to do at, by statute and by ethical standards is that we have to act in the interests of justice. Uh, and so that can be sort of a definition that might be varying to different people. But as I view it, it's what's fair, what's right, and what's beneficial to the community for public safety purposes. Mm, that is very helpful. Uh, thank you for that. Because that's um, there, there's so much about the system that your average person doesn't understand. Uh, and one one piece of that process is the grand jury and the indictment process. Can you speak a little bit towards that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a great question. And uh, so the grand jury process in Maine, every felony that uh, the prosecutors go forward with needs to go in front of a grand jury. Uh, the only times that you actually don't have to go in front of a grand jury is when a defendant agrees to waive a grand jury. And that usually only happens in the plea process. Uh, but what the grand jury is, is a group of individuals who meet um, in Cumberland County. They meet every month, but I know in other counties, it's a little bit less. Uh, the grand jury is basically presented with facts uh, from, given to them by prosecutors, and they make a determination of whether or not there's probable cause uh, to go forward with those felony charges. Uh, the grand jury process is secret, and that's by rule. Uh, the judicial, uh, the grand jury process is actually a judicial function. It's not a uh, prosecutorial function, but they do act in a prosecutor, uh, prosecution capacity. And we basically present cases to the grand jury. Now, my what I do and what the, my prosecutors in Cumberland County do is make sure that the grand jury knows all the information, even if there is information that might not be helpful to our case, because we really look at the grand jury process as the consciousness of the community. So if there is a situation or a case where there might be doubts as to probable cause by the grand jury, it's going to be very difficult for us to prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that may influence whether or not we're going to go forward with the case. Nice. Thank you. Jeremy, at what point do you come in on the scene? It, it depends. But may I, before I answer that, could I possibly comment on the grand jury process? I just can't help myself. Is that okay? Please feel free. Uh, thank you. It, it should be noted that it's a one-sided presentation to the grand jury. That means the defense attorney is not present, the defendant's not present, and there is an old saying that even a ham sandwich could be indicted, and that is very true. The bar is extraordinarily low when it's a one-sided presentation where the state gets to pick and choose what information is presented to the grand jury. While I um, appreciate Jonathan saying that in his office, they bring forward evidence that is not favorable to the state in order to make sure that the grand jury has all of that information. Unfortunately, I don't know if that's true in other counties, and frankly, defense attorneys would not know if that's true in Jonathan's county, because again, it's secret. It's not recorded unless if a court orders it to be recorded. And even if it's recorded, those transcripts are not provided to the defense unless there's a court order to provide that. I think the grand jury process is ripe for reform to make it meaningful, more transparent, and more accountable. I think there are ways to do that to protect people who are not or what are called no build, who are not indicted, but to make sure that all of the information is presented so there's actually a fair and meaningful grand jury process. Um, so I apologize. May I call you Leo? 
Oh, please do. I apologize for not actually answering your question, but it's hard as a defense attorney sometimes just to, to be quiet and not have a chance to rebut what a prosecutor is saying. So if you wouldn't mind, would you ask your question again or feel free to uh, return to Jonathan if you wish? Um, yeah, no, that that's great. And um, so at this point, we've heard from uh, the point of police contact up through arrest and the grand jury and indictment process. So at this point, where do you come through um, on the arraignment up through the plea deal through sentencing and so forth? Uh, it depends. I do uh, court appointed work and I do privately retained work. And unfortunately, the starting process is often different between the two. For the people who are lucky enough to have the funds to retain an attorney, oftentimes that retention comes soon after police contact. Unfortunately, if you do not have the means, which means you are indigent and will eventually receive a court-appointed counsel, you do not receive an attorney until you've actually been present in court and can apply through a financial screener to see if you financially qualify. Um, MCILS, which is the main commission on indigent legal services, I believe is trying to work through a process so attorneys get appointed sooner, and I would fully support that. For instance, my understanding is that when someone receives a complaint, so if law enforcement has two options when they initiate prosecution against someone or start the criminal proceedings against someone, they either can arrest them or issue what's called a summons, basically a ticket saying, hey, you've been charged with this crime. You have to appear in court on a certain date. Sometimes that court date can be six, eight, 12 weeks or more later on down the road. And that means that person would not receive an attorney until after they've gone to court six, eight, 12 weeks. And as you can imagine, sometimes investigating a case and getting information, making sure evidence is preserved, making sure that witnesses are contacted early on when their memories are fresh, making sure that videos from third parties are preserved. All of that goes away because the attorneys are not appointed soon enough. So to answer your question is, it can be as soon as someone has contact with law enforcement or believe they're under investigation, or it can be after they are arrested or summoned and have their first court appearance if they're applying for counsel. So uh, I hate always all of my answers being, well, it depends, but in, in uh, most of my answers are going to be, it depends, and same with in this situation. Thank you for that answer. That That's really helpful. Could you talk a little bit about the process of going to a plea deal or a jury trial? Again, I think this is something a lot of people are confused about because on TV, everybody goes to the jury trial. Nobody goes through plea deals. Uh, so, but, but, the, but the reality is most people actually go not, not to jury trial, but through plea deals. So I'm um, starting with you, Jonathan. Can you talk just a little bit about the process towards a plea deal versus a jury trial? Yeah, so when a prosecutor gets a case, basically the information that um, they have is what's in the police report. And uh, if the person has a criminal history, that criminal history. Uh, we don't know much about that individual, um, except if that person's had contact with our office before. Uh, but really, we're just looking at what the allegations are from the police officer's perspective um, and what the law is for, with regards to the charge. So after that analysis, if we decide to go forward with prosecution. Um, what we will basically do is uh, we'll ask for information about the, uh, the, the individual from their attorney, uh, find out a little bit more about the, the person, what the root causes are, why that person's in front of us, why that person has been involved now with the criminal legal system. And then we can really kind of come up with a, a sort of a, a, a plea deal, if you will, an offer 
uh, to see whether or not if this person will is willing to uh, plead guilty, may basically take responsibility for the actions uh, and see how we can basically use this very flawed system that we have as the criminal legal system to try to help out this individual, but also help out the community. Uh, one of the key issues that we have is about recidivism. And in my view, is if we can come up with a solution in a case that's going to make it so that person doesn't come back into the criminal legal system, then we've succeeded. Uh, and sometimes that is addressing the root causes, which I think are a lot have a lot to do with substance use disorder and mental health issues. Um, and that's going back even further to unpeel it, adverse childhood experiences, sustained trauma as a child. Uh, what happened to this person, not what did this person do? Uh, and it's it's very difficult because we have limited resources when it comes to addressing those issues. Uh, but to me, if you have an individual who's taking a proactive response while the case is pending and they can demonstrate through their counsel what they've been doing to address these issues and to show that uh, this was a one off or this, this behavior is uh, changed uh, to address it, then it should be a step that we're taking on our side uh, to try to see if we can reduce the uh, the idea of incarceration being the answer, uh, because we know that that is not the answer, quite frankly, uh, but trying to take steps to really uh, uh, give that person an opportunity uh, to get on the right path and hopefully stay on the right path. Thank you. Jeremy, I'd like to follow up with you. Um, in, in your way of thinking, is, is an offer of a plea deal a form of justice? That's a complicated question because I think it depends on whether you're asking is it justice with a capital J or justice with a lowercase j. And from my perspective as a criminal defense attorney, my goal is to effectuate desires of my client. So when I meet with a client, I ask them to sort of rank and order what are their priorities. And if their priorities are, I want my day in court, I want a trial, then that's their priority. Sometimes people come to me and say, I want no jail time. I don't care about anything else. Sometimes they say, I, I don't want a felony or, or whatever it is. I try to make sure that what they want is fair based on what the state can prove. Ultimately, though, I my hands are tied by based on what the client wants. So I have plenty of examples where I, I can recall begging a client to go to trial because I thought he was almost guaranteed to win. And I never say that to people. And he was just not the type of person who was comfortable rolling the dice, regardless of how great I thought his chances are were of winning. So my role, I so I, I don't know the answer to your question. All I can say is. I try to meet my clients' needs and desires, and I get there in a variety of ways. Again, I apologize for not actually answering your question, but I, I don't think it's, I don't have, I think, the luxury of determining whether my cases are just or not their outcomes, because I am playing, I am, my role is to be an advocate where someone else is giving me certain direction. So uh, uh, sorry for that inelegant answer, but no, thank you. I think that's extremely yeah. helpful. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy, what you said about grand jury, I, I really couldn't um, agree with you more. I, I, my background is I was a prosecutor in Massachusetts and down there, all the grand jury proceedings are actually recorded and those minutes are automatically given over to defense counsel. So uh, it's a very valuable tool as an investigative process to really use. And 
I've kind of brought that with me up here um, because I just think that it's it's an underutilized process. Um, we're going to take a moment here. Leo's going to hang up and then redial. Uh, so we get the, the full 30 minutes. So we'll just take a pause. Leo, talk to you in a sec. You are listening to Our Prisons the Answer, Justice Radio, with Catherine Besteman and Leo Hilton. Today we're talking about how people end up in prison with DA Jonathan Sarbeck and defense attorney Jeremy Pratt. We know our prisons disproportionately incarcerate poor people, people with substance use disorder, people with mental health challenges, black and brown people, and people with deep trauma histories. In Maine, 40% of those in prison did not graduate from high school. Black and brown people are disproportionately incarcerated relative to white people by a ratio of nine to one, the fifth worst in the nation. About a quarter of those incarcerated are on medication-assisted treatment for substance use, and 45% are being treated with psychotropic medication. Some argue that we use prisons to manage rather than properly address and fix social problems. Jeremy, Jonathan, as you listen to all of that, what does it feel like to walk with someone through this system? Everybody has one story. Every prosecutor, every defense attorney has that one story that affected you more than anyone else about what brought somebody to prison. Can you share with us, what is that story for you? What is that one story that really sticks with you from your work? Jeremy? The one that sticks with me most, I'm going to be broad so that no one can identify the particular case, but um, I had a client who was charged with a very serious crime. He had very limited cognitive ability, but he was competent. He asserted that he was innocent of the charges, and I believed him not only for what he told me, but because of some of the evidence in the case. We knew if he went to trial and lost, he was facing multiple decades in prison. And he an offer was made that was still more than a decade, but less than if he goes to trial. He rejected the offer and we went to trial and he was convicted. And as the trial went on, I became more convinced of his innocence. And then after he went to prison, he was murdered in prison and he was murdered in a way that all murders are awful and hor- horrendous and heinous. But his was particularly heinous. And it has stuck with me because as a defense attorney, I struggle with how much do I push someone to take a plea agreement? How much influence should I exert over them? And I think back on this case and should I have pushed him harder to take that plea agreement, even though I believed him to be innocent, but the risk that he was facing was so overwhelming and Given the nature of the allegations, there was a realistic possibility he was going to be convicted. It was not a a slam dunk case in any way. You asked me to pick one, and that's the one that always immediately comes to mind. But when I pause, I can think of 20 more that come to mind. As a defense attorney, we lose a lot. I mean, in the way that we count victories are often very limited, which is a good plea deal, um, getting some charges dismissed, getting some charges reduced. Rarely is it a pure victory of not guilties after trial all across the board. I often think when I lose that all I do is lose because those are the ones that stick with me. And I can recount all of these different losses, but the number of victories I can think of are very little. So my wife actually keeps a list for me 
Because when I have a loss and think, oh, I can't believe I lost, all I do is lost, she actually will read them out to me, some of the people that I've helped and some of the things that I've done that to wins, you know, pure acquittals, good deals, all of those things, appellate uh, reversals. But for me, it's the losses that stick with me and the where I don't think that justice with a capital J was done. Those are the ones that I can remember. And it's hard to pick out one because there's so many, but that that particular gentleman is the one that will stick with me for my entire life. Jeremy, that's a, I'm sorry to hear about that. I mean, obviously, I, I assume I've never really done too much criminal defense work, but I imagine that there is a bond that you uh, that's created between you and when you're representing somebody and to lose them in that fashion. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, for me, I, I kind of view things in a different perspective because on the prosecutor side, we really look to try to see if we can speak and help help victims in the criminal legal system. Um, and I always think about the times where, for instance, I had a case where it was an 18-year-old girl who was sexually assaulted and we went to trial and the defendant was convicted. And afterwards, her looking me in the eye and just saying, thank you, thank you for believing in me. Um, that was to me what was what why I keep going when it comes to prosecution. But um, in the last few years, one of the big things that I've been doing is the treatment court here in Cumberland County, which is addressing people who are high risk, high needs, who are involved in the criminal legal system uh, and putting them through a very intense uh, probationary period where they get a lot of supervision, uh, but they also get a lot of help and a lot of treatment when it comes to coming into the criminal legal system and the alternative for them is usually a doc sentence uh, because they've gone they've come that far either with the charges or with their history or uh, this could be a, a fifth or sixth probation violation uh, and one somebody asked me a few years ago when in, when you're seeing all this despair when you're when you're dealing with uh, so much substance use disorder uh, when people come in domestic violence victims um, sexual sex abuse victims and you're speaking to them and uh, what sort of little victories do you take and i told them that when we see somebody graduate from the treatment court that to me is one of the the victories that i take and i really try to just kind of internalize it sort of like jeremy was saying with remembering the wins uh, because sometimes you're you're really facing off with a lot of things that aren't uh, that are the negatives um, and these are human beings. Every individual, both victim and defendant, that comes to the criminal legal system is a human being. Uh, and to me, there's always hope for everybody. Uh, so when you ask about those sort of victories, to me, it's the individuals that we can save using the treatment court and steer in the right direction so they actually don't end up uh, in prison. Thank you both. And what really comes out to me is the language around winning and losing and who wins and who loses and how this entire framework just really keeps people trapped. Not just the people who are coming through the system and going to prison, but the people who are harmed all the way around. Uh, so thank you both so much for that sharing. Yes, thank you so much, Jonathan and Jeremy, for joining us for this show. We've learned a lot. Leo, I want to follow up with you uh, on a couple of points uh, that you shared with us just in your final closing comments. You said that this entire framework keeps people trapped, and I want to follow up on that. We have an adversarial criminal legal system where there are, as you say, winners and losers. How does that keep people trapped? It's hard to not be trapped when your options are limited. When you listen to when we listened to Jonathan and Jeremy speak so 
knowledgeably about the system, so much of the sharing really boils down to three options, treatment, probation, or incarceration. With those limited options, it's hard to imagine anything different. You have a defense attorney and a prosecutor who fight to win, rightfully, you know, trying to uh, uplift the needs of the people that they're representing the defendant and the victim survivor, and it's up to the judge to decide the outcome. And yet, when that outcome is decided, the defendant is under whatever sentence they receive, whether it is incarceration, treatment, or probation. And the victim survivor, they're fighting to be heard and healed within the system. The defendant is in a place where they need to fight to protect themselves against the system. And then once the sentence is rendered, both are forgotten. The defendant goes to whatever their sentence is, and then they're forgotten. And the same is true of the victim survivor. What services are actually offered to them that they're able to take advantage of beyond the execution of the sentence, beyond the rendering of that sentence? And then you have the drug courts, right? The treatment that Jonathan had mentioned. And that can be an avenue of healing, an avenue of actual healing and a way to move forward for the defendant and can also bring relief to the victim survivor to know that the person who harmed them may be actually getting better. But how many people does that actually benefit? What is the decision-making process for who is deemed worthy of that alternative avenue of hope and treatment? And how many prosecutors are like Jonathan and actually acknowledge the humanity of offenders in the first place? These are all questions that beg an answer. Thank you for that. Can I follow up with an additional question? Please do. So one of the things that you're pointing out to us is our adversarial system, um, which ends in a win or a loss, leaves us with, at the end of the plea deal, or extremely rarely, a jury trial, it's game over, right? The victim survivor is told, we're done now, we're done, you won or you lost, you go off, you live your life, you do whatever. And the person who has caused harm is told, we're going to disappear you into a prison, um, or we're going to invest much more rarely. We're going to invest in your healing if if the issue is precipitated by substance use disorder by sending you to drug treatment court. But overall, the vast majority of people uh, don't go to drug treatment court. The vast majority of people receive a sentence of some kind. Again, for them, game over. We remove you from society. We exile you. We put you into prison or jail. And what I hear you to be saying is that in a win or loss system, there's no avenue towards actually repairing the damage that was done that brought those two individuals into the court in the first place. That our adversarial system is so focused on winning and losing that it's not focused on healing or repair in a, in a human sense. Can you comment on that? I would love to. Yes. <laughs> um, that's exactly what I was saying. Because Jeremy had mentioned that he prioritizes what his clients are asking for. Another, uh, another way that, that, that he is trapped is that if his client says, I want to actively participate in repairing the harm that I caused, 
I want to actively participate in creating healing, then that's one thing that he can't do. Our system is so focused on winning and losing that there is no room for real healing or accountability and repair. So through these stories, we have now heard the process of how someone ends up in prison. And we've heard the experiences of those who walk with them through the system. Coming shows, we will begin to explore how to think differently about justice and accountability. Are prisons the answer? Next week, please join Marian Anderson and Craig Williams for Voices of the Directly Impacted on Justice Radio. In the meantime, check out the CourtWatch Maine project at courtwatchme.org, where you can volunteer to observe Maine's court proceedings and support a meaningful effort for change. With thanks to bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series, We Are Justice Radio.